0: So this is episode five of Connecting Tech and Design, and today we're talking with Danny Forrester. Danny, how are you?
1: I am great. How are you?
0: Doing doing well, doing well. Thanks for making the time for coming on to talk with us today. I appreciate it. I know you're really busy. You've got a bunch of projects going on, and you were just, before we started recording, you were just telling me about uh, some, some other things that you've got going on with a renovation in, of your own property and uh, a big conference here that you're doing a presentation. We'll get into all of that as as we get talking, but before we kind of dive into um, into. In, into the, into the weeds here. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you, your background, what you've, what you've done, and, and sort of what you're working on um, today, if you would.
1: Sure. Um, I guess kind of by way of a semi-brief introduction, my name is Danny Forster. I'm an architect, and also uh, I work in television, uh, film and TV as well. I've kind of a, some of a bizarre, bifurcated career. Uh, some of your your listeners might know me from Extreme Engineering and Build It Bigger, a TV show I hosted on Discovery Channel and Science Channel for many, many years, where I got to go all over the world to 60 different countries looking at the most incredible architecture and engineering projects and basically climb all over them and explain how they work, why they work, and sort of how they're connected to the culture or the climate or the place in which they're built, basically letting a very, at the time, young architect become an architectural documentarian and a storyteller about buildings. Uh, From that, I also got to produce and direct uh, with Steven Spielberg, a big documentary called Rising, Rebuilding Ground Zero, which was about a four-year effort of chronicling the reconstruction of the World Trade Center site, Uh, made a six-hour documentary film available on iTunes and Amazon and all those sorts of places. Um, And I'm also doing, or most recently did a show called How China Works, which was a big kind of all looking at over 40 different cities in China, looking at technology, infrastructure, architecture basically, what does it mean for a billion people to join the middle class and how do they live and what supports that lifestyle? And uh, but most recently, or I would say probably the majority of my time is spent doing architecture. Uh, I'm the principal of a firm called Danny Forrester and Architecture here in uh, Manhattan and we build a whole host of different kinds of projects residential master planning towers hotels residences museums and we have spent a lot of time doing hotels lately hotel towers we uh, recently completed the world trade center marriott a really beautiful tower just in the southern end of the world trade center site and we've also been really excited about modular uh just as a, as a new kind of tipping point in architecture and construction we're presently designing and building what will be the tallest modular building in the world a project at 842 6th Avenue in Manhattan, uh, which will be a Marriott AC hotel project. So lots of different stuff, cooking from some TV, some films, some architecture, some modular, uh, just trying to keep the lights on and the doors open, so to speak.
0: <laughs> that is, that's a lot. And you know, what's funny is when I was first introduced to you, um, Alex Caposolatro of Josh A.I., uh, about a month or so ago said hey, you 've really got to talk to danny he 's amazing he 's interested in me but he 's just he 's got a fascinating background and i, and I think you 'll love him uh, and, and immediately upon looking at your bios it was, it was uh, I was so thrilled to to be able to talk to you. What was funny was i d- hadn 't realized that you were the guy that I saw on extreme engineering, and my husband and I used to watch, watch that show religiously for for years and so it wasn 't until after I had, had talked to you the first time and went back to take a look at At um, sort of your body of work, I was like, "That—that's who you are!" Oh my gosh!
1: (laughs) Yeah, people are often like, "Are you the?" I was like, "You know, the nervous Jewish kid on the side of the skyscraper." Yeah, that's that's, me. (laughs) That's me. The the memory clicks into place. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But man, I mean, so the just the the course of your career and uh, has has taken you to so many fascinating places, and 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 the work that you're doing is is really incredible. There's I could sit and talk to you for hours today, I'm sure. And I, I, I'm sure there would be listeners that would stay on that long. But, uh, you know, I kind of want to focus in on, on a couple of things that I think um, have, sure. have some, some real relevance here for connecting tech and design, which, of course, is the conversation really exploring the, the intersection of uh, design and technology. Um, and I I have to think that there is a ton of technology going into these projects that you're working on. Um, and so I kind of just want to share with us a little bit of, of of, of that, if you will, is just sort of, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, your designs and at what point in the conversation does technology start to come into play? And what are some of the kind of the considerations now for you as an architect that um, you're sort of, you know, taking into consideration or, um, you know, taking it a, a, a kind of a deeper dive into?
1: Sure. I mean, I think in general terms, the way I respond to that question is not dissimilar to how... I respond to the question when people ask you, "Do you do sustainable design or green architecture?" And, mm-hmm. and generally speaking, I would say, like, if if that isn't part of the way in which you approach a building, you're a bad architect. In other words, like at this point in time, it is part and parcel of what we do. At least I think it should be. You know, uh, a, a building built unsustainably is a building that's been designed unthoughtfully or not mindfully. And I think the same would be said of kind of integrating technology in one yeah. form or another. That you know, th- if if the relationship between you and your phone is what it is, to disintermediate the relationship between you and a building and not have that similar level of intuitive integration, then, you're, then you are limiting the capacity of architecture to impact its users. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a disappointment if we think about a building as a thing to keep rain out and an iPhone as a thing that connects you to the world. Um, you know, embedded in architecture is the capacity to do all the wonderful programmatic, functional things that building has to do. But then also, there is the the power to move to 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 like move you physically and emotionally, and, and sort of have all of those wonderful emotional uh, um, uh, operational experiences built into it. So for us, technology is the way to make that happen, uh, and it's there from the from day one. It's there from the beginning. Um, yeah, and where do you
0: where do you feel that and I, and I think for the, for this part of the conversation, I'll kind of hone in a little bit on the on the, the residential um, sure. part of the conversation and, and and you know so the the typical homeowner that you interact with um, are they coming to you with uh, with an with sort of a an expectation of where technology will have a play in in the work that you're doing for them, or is that something that you sort of introduce to them? What's, how does how does that kind of conversation come together as you're seeing it with your customers?
1: I think with the exception of someone who is a real fetishist and is like super focused on the tech itself, I think most of the interactions we have are, are people who want something just to work and mm-hmm. to be beautiful and amazing and to function and the degree to which we integrate technology and in service of what their goals are, that kind of comes from our side of the table. Mm-hmm. I, I, at least in my experience, I don't have people coming saying, I want this gadget, I want that gadget. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm happy to have that client, don't get me wrong, but that, that isn't <laughs> the dialogue that we have. I right. think it's more about what's the sort of, what's the way in which people want to interact with their homes, with their spaces? Yeah. Um, h- how how loaded with the tech do they want it to get? I mean, there are some people who, feel very strongly about the kind of elegance of the experience. I mean, you know, in very simple terms, I think of the keypad versus the light switch. I mean, one is binary, one is not. Um, You know, one produces an an A or B, and the other produces a series of experiences. And some people from the very beginning are very focused on that kind of qualitative mood, experiential way in which they describe their homes. I mean, I remember I had a project for a house for a client, a, a lake house in Michigan. And it was a a client who had, on the property, had a very small, it was almost like a mobile home they'd had there for many, many years, a very modest home. And after quite a bit of time, they were deciding to remove the mobile home and build something special and sustainable and really exciting. And when I asked them for a site plan, a sort of description of, of the property so I could get my head around the project, I got a two-page Word document of them (laughs) describing what it is to walk around the site and experience the the, the changing the light and the wind and so forth. And that very clearly from the get-go told me who I was dealing with and the kind of experiential subtlety that this client had. And therefore the technology and the architecture was gonna have to meet them at that place, right? That's different from someone who says, I need a two bedroom, three bathroom. You know what I mean? Like you, You know very early off in the process, the kind of level of sensitivity and awareness of the client you're dealing with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I take it then the, uh, I, you've worked on a residence that's on your website, the Flatiron residence. That's probably at the other end of the spectrum. I take it <laughs> or maybe yeah, not, right. maybe not, but um, it, it, you know, what's interesting in our, in our world on the AV side, um, there's, there's, there tends to be a a really broad variance between um, how, between how technology is integrated into the home and sort of the, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a connection to the age, I think too, of of the occupants of the home and how, how device dependent they are. Um, You know, the younger, the younger, the the resident, the more likely that they are to be very, very device dependent. Um, And that from from what the integrators are telling us is really that's a much different conversation today than it used to be because it's, it's a, there's a lot of a need to integrate the technology that they're familiar with and using on a daily basis, phones, tablets, those sorts of things, and as well as integrating the common residential type technologies, automation, lights, uh, lighting, shades, um, audio and video, those things, and, and now trying to make it so that there's a cohesion between those two worlds and those two experiences so how do we make everything in the home capable of being controlled or have an experience delivered by way of a device but also you know, have a standalone
1: right <laughs> totally yeah. i think i think the the kind of i think the the former dividing line of how device dependent were you became was a very helpful indicator mm-hmm. i think the kind of uh, Unilateral device dependency that we have a society and that people have kind of—it's no longer age dependent, really. Right. I mean, right. there's the, there are degrees of let's say the you know there's certainly like the propensity of a 12 year old to use Snapchat is different from say like a, a geriatric person. Okay, sure. fine. So you certainly have poles on the side of the spectrum, but we're pretty engaged, right? And I think that's very helpful. My my own personal experience as you were talking reminds me like so I've been renovating. uh uh, my home for the last too many months right and (laughs) and so for that period of time i've been amongst uh without a home i've also been without a television which are you know from my perspective equally problematic Um, so so i have been living uh by, by by way of streaming i've been carrying my ipad around this rental property where i've been staying watching my tvs and my shows and so forth right um well, lo and behold, like now that my content, which in the past was frankly more TV-based, even if I was watching HBO, now I'm watching HBO Go, let's say, right? Now that I've sort of been forced to wean myself off of non-on-demand television, I guess that's an old word for just cable, right? <laughs> um, that, that I really now do as I'm now finishing my renovation and finishing my AV integration, I really do see an iPad on the wall. In lieu of a television, right? Mm-hmm. I really do see it that way. And because I'm thinking in those terms, it really does change how I'm thinking about the home. It really is not the old world of the TV does X, the lights do Y, the iPhone does J. Yeah. I really, and you know, I've been sort of forced to feel this way, but it does feel so much more connected than it once did. And does
0: it also feel a little bit liberated as well? As a little bit, fr- maybe liberated, not the right word, but maybe just a little bit more freeing? Like you're not being held yeah, to the constraints of the TV in that room and that size. And, you know, that's going to be your experience because it's in that space and you're sitting in that chair because that's the only chair that's in the room or, you know, like as you explained, and you're walking around a room, you can take your tablet, you can, or, you know, whatever that visual device is and sit where you want to watch what you want.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is going to sound like I'm a lunatic, but you know, so be it. I made the comment, this came out of my mouth just the other day. I said, Hey, quick question. Uh, are iPads waterproof? And, <laughs> let me explain the, the context of the question because what I, because I'm so used to schlepping my iPad around the house, now taking it into the bathroom, taking it into the kitchen, what have you, it is completely reasonable and likely that I will be watching a show on TV. That'll be some form of a streaming app. I will pause it. I will then pick up my iPad, go to the kitchen or go to the bathroom and I will continue the television program yeah. because obviously it's, it's, it's time stamped right? Yeah. That is, I think in maybe a year or two or a couple of years ago, that would sound like the actions of a madman who needed medication. <laughs> I think today it is not an insane behavior. Yeah, I agree. It kind of shows a, a level of untreated ADD that might want to get looked at, but <laughs> I am actively looking forward for the seamlessness with which I can yep. do what I just described.
0: Yep, yep. Absolutely, and that's, and that's where technology for me gets really fun, um, you know, and, and that's and we're, we're starting to see a lot of products coming into the residential space now that are kind of combining those two. So, for instance, there's a smart mirror. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a brand called Syra, S-E-U-R-A. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. But so, um, at Cedia Expo this last year, they introduced their smart mirror, and it's fully interactive. Um, so, in with your experience there, as I understand it, you could, instead of taking your tablet into that of the room, you would just send the experience to that room and you just pull it back up on the mirror, right? And, it, and so it's all about, um, and I think where we're we're both worlds are going, design and technology, and correct me if you think that I'm wrong by any means, but it really seems like we're, we are right at that point where the two truly are merging and that technology is, servicing, is serving um, a higher purpose for design and maybe vice versa. Um, and, and I don't know if higher purpose is the right way of putting it, but that it's facilitating um, a deeper, more enriching experience, um, and one is doing the same for the other
1: yeah, I mean I think I agree a thousand percent, and I think a lot of what you're describing from my somewhat um, naive perspective because i 'm not a technologist at my core, right, but I do think that the infrastructure in the back end has caught up to the promise of the tech, and you know what I mean by that is like in a very simple example as I was describing, like the fact that i am I'm, I'm rewatching the sopranos because why not? <laughs> and i was on uh i'm in season two uh i forgot what episode it was this morning but i was just in a really critical part and unfortunately i had to leave to get to the office so i'm in the subway so you know i just crack open my iphone and i opened up my hbo go app and i it, it of course knows where i left off right now that 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 seems like a pretty small thing right but it's actually like Obviously, an amazing amount of cloud storage is required to support what's a simple thing, which is basically like a digital bookmark, right? right. But it, that didn't exist for a while. And the simple advent of that one piece of the puzzle all of a sudden makes that wall between me and these apps so much lower, yep. right? Yeah. I think of in terms of architecture and, and residential interior design, I think of video art for a minute. You know, Video art has been something that's existed for Since we've had video, right? artists have worked in multiple media and video, but we haven't really had a very solid infrastructure for people who own video art files to safely archive them, catalog them, access them, just deal with them in a way that would elevate a digital file to that of an authentic piece of fine art. Well, that's happening now, right? There are companies out there, a great company we collaborate with called Neo. There's a bunch of others that are looking at this. Now, yeah. by creating a way to allow people to own digital art and view digital art and kind of coalescing those needs, now I can legitimately propose to a client, myself being one of them, that I'm going to have a beautiful you know, 65-inch vertical screen integrated into a wall that will be part of a video art system. Yeah. And, yeah. and I couldn't do that in the past because I was going to have... A janky hard drive hidden behind a wall he was gonna to have to change it just like it wasn't clean right. and because it wasn't clean i couldn't push it
0: so so from where i said and and you know from the audiovisual industry's perspective you know so much of what we're talking about is is delivering the experience and from how I see your world, um, not to speak on behalf of what you do or your world, but it really, it, it, to make it simple, it seems as though there's a very direct connection in, in that sentiment of delivering the experience. And um, you know, I think where we are right now, there's never been a time when technology has had more of, of an importance throughout the home. Um, and, you know, you and I have been kind of focusing a lot on the video side of it and TV and streaming and and, and that side, but there's so much more going on now, too, when you think about the automation aspect and lighting and shades and, um, you know, just the the automation components of things um, within the residence where you can turn on and turn off uh, based on times of the day, light, um, motion, uh, you know, any security mechanisms, that sort of thing. I was kind of curious it, how where do you Where do you sort of see all of all of this going from an architect's perspective um are you are you typically involved sort of in i guess at the the decision making process with the client when all of these notions are first coming to be or do you find that they're already somewhat educated about the type of experiences that they, that they want and what's available in the marketplace. And I guess where I'm going with this is, Do you, are, are you guys as much of an advisor as an educator or a facilitator or kind of a combo?
1: You know, I'm, I've spoken a lot about this at some kind of AV conferences recently. And, and, and I think I feel pretty strongly that the the transition has gone from this where in the past, the AV discussions, the integrator conversations happen towards the back end of the project where more things are locked. And it's sort of low voltage AV just exists as a thing that is dealt with later. And um, it's always obviously pressed by budget because by that point in the project, you've got some budget fatigue and some general exhaustion. And and so for a lot of VE tends to happen, that can be tricky. Uh, but that, that point in the sequence, that later point in the sequence was largely... A result of the lack of integration right it was more of an applied set of technologies at that point because the level of integration is more significant now i think by extension we integrate our integrators earlier in the discussion and we do want to be really uh forthright in that largely because it just does more stuff mm-hmm. you know i need to be thinking about av integration because i've got an hvac system that's tied to this thing yeah i've got lighting i've got shades Yes, of course. I've got AV, and I've got all this wonderful video stuff, which is cool and exciting, which feels a bit like the whistles on top. But we are really pushing this level of integration at uh, at our systems level. So we want it to be happening very, very early. And yeah, we want to be advisors for sure. I mean, I always look to my consultants as as our partners. Now, whether an AV integrator is being hired by the client after the fact, directly by the client, directly to the client, as opposed to the GC. We still like to think of our AV integrators like a lighting consultant, like a structural engineer. In other words, a partner who is delivering expertise to help the project. And and yeah, we want those folks at the table as early as possible.
0: Yeah. And that certainly is, is a a common um, conversation that's taking place now. And, and, and I'm hearing more and more from the AV side of the table that they're getting involved earlier and sooner and, and how much more of a benefit that is. Um, You know, and it's, uh, I think, again, I think we're probably just that intersection um, that we're at right now is, is facilitating, I think, um, a, a tighter connection of the trades earlier on in the, in the process. Yeah.
1: but I think the onus is on them to really hold that consultant mantle and not be selling. In yeah. other words, at the early point in the process, if they're going to come to the table earlier, they've got to come as thought leaders right. and bringing a knowledge base and an expertise to help sculpt the project and hear about the scope. And then we kind of deal with the solution shortly, you know, later down the pike.
0: Right. And
1: uh, I think that's that's really mission critical to make that relationship work. Yeah. So uh, we really do feel like we've got a co-designer with us.
0: Yeah yeah and is that it, from a sort of from a relationship standpoint is that sort of co-designer um consultant advisor is that sort of the type of relationship and terminology that that you'd prefer to use i and i ask because i know a lot in in years past a, a lot of integrators have um Attempted to work more closely with architects and, and have been less than successful and, and in hindsight what they realized is they were sort of approaching it as bull in a china shop um, or coming in just maybe a little bit too heavy handed and all you know all tech and and if I'm recommending it it's it's the only thing it's the only way um, much too heavy handed to to come across as being. Um, a versatile partner, uh, you know, yeah. and and so, I guess one is to ask you, you know, is, is that do you still see that happening, or do you feel as though um sort of the the trades in general, AB as one of them, getting better at at the first introduction and and being that partner, or do you do you still feel like kind of that approach could use some refinement? And and I guess in that, you know, if you were talking to that audience, what would you say?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm speaking uh, to the yeah. audience of AB integrators out there. Hello. Yeah. I would say that there is always room for improvement in the sense that if you think of yourself as a knowledge provider, uh, you know, you're never selling, you're always sharing. Yeah. You know, you're telling people about great ideas and great technology. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, that, look, it's always, it's always tricky when you've got the, the flow of commerce. You know, we've got mm-hmm. a structural engineer whose fee is based upon the complexity of the project, irrespective of the cost of concrete. Our mechanical engineers are designing based upon the mechanical loads, not the type of forced air versus what have you, HVAC system, right? So they're somewhat agnostic to the final budget of the project. That's different with an A-B integrator, right? They are going to be involved in the acquisition of the technology, the installation, and the design of the programming. So they are being compensated by virtue of the complexity of the system. Okay. So, but how do you somewhat divorce yourself from that process at the early stage And really help people to learn about a technology. Because I think what can happen, and I think this always happens, on my projects, if people understand the potential of the technology, they will push the scope and grow it because they'll be excited about the possibilities. If they're absorbing hardware and complicated things, they will shun away from it because they won't understand it. Mm -hmm. And so if you close the the comprehension gap, in other words, if you're just explaining the possibilities of this stuff, they then can become the propulsion that, that that advances the scope the client i mean and i think that's that's just always a better better position to be in and then and then the client becomes the advocate for the tech i mean that's the best thing in the world right
0: yeah yeah absolutely so that's and that's interesting cuz that it definitely mirrors what i'm hearing from interior designers as well um and almost kind of the the full spectrum of of that little bit of our conversation from getting in early in the conversation to um to being a a, a partner and a participant in the conversation um and and allowing the client to to advocate for the things that are important to them um and modifying the approach to ensure that ultimately the experience is what they expected and you know it's it's uh it all comes down to the experience um i mean for me that's i kind of base my whole world around that um and i you know i think it's just it's just it's a really interesting time because i think that the experience now can actually live up to the expectation and for many years at least on the tech side you know we've been touting this and we've been touting that and we've been doing our best to Make it happen as much as we can, um, but you know, and as as with technology, you know, some things just aren't ready for prime time yet. But we're still selling it, you know. It's you just it's a position. Yeah. It, so. <laughs>
1: and things are, and and the, and the tech that your world is providing to my world is getting a lot closer to the to the gospel, right? It's starting it to is. do this stuff it says it could do. Yeah. Um, and it's also becoming, I think, um a little more, a little less cost prohibitive. that's yeah. that I think is the exciting piece. Absolutely. Um, so that, that's cool. I mean, that being said, I do think, you know, we're also in a situation where the sort of prosumer versus pro versus consumer stuff, that the gap between them is pretty wide as well. Yeah. Like, you know, I think people cobbling together a whole host of kind of like wacky speech automated stuff and a, you know, a speaker and an LED bulb. Like you can do it, obviously, yeah. but you'll have slightly jankier results. So I think we'll keep you away from really embracing the technology. Yes. So I think as the tech costs are coming down a little bit, it's enabling people to actually work with pe- with with professionals who can set this thing up so you can actually have that performance that you heard about or saw in a video somewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, too, to sort of um, segue a little bit over into the, co- the commercial aspect of your world, um, that the hospitality experiences now, I think, are incorporating so much... Consumer or prosumer type technology that, as we travel and we stay in hotels, or if we Airbnb in a high-end residence, they, we're being surrounded by technologies either visibly or subtly, um, and are being provided an experience. When we go home, we want that at home too. And so I, you know, I f- I, I really feel as though um, from a commercial sp- space, you know, the hospitality is definitely driving um, some cons- uh, consumer buying decisions, at least with relation to to technology where I focus. Um, and i think that's really interesting and um i don't know if you if you kind of notice the same thing but obviously my segue here is is over to the modular um work that you're sure. doing and i i can only imagine um those uh, there's got to be there, a lot of technology goes into building those environments and those spaces but also that the the experience that they're delivering is also a technology driven one too so um Tell me a little bit of, and, and, and if you would kind of start from the top, help our audience understand when I'm talking about the modular spaces you're working on. Tell us what that is and then uh, sure. and sort of you know where where's, where is tech in all of that?
1: Yeah, well I'll just say this modular architecture or, or manufactured uh, architecture is the, is a technological advancement in the building and construction and engineering industry. So this is tech uh, through and through but yeah. you know in very simple terms, uh, it's off-site construction. it's pre-fabricating or pre-building, large aspects of your project in an off-site factory-controlled environment and then shipping or driving or moving these off-site built objects and then assembling them on-site. So, uh, in in a most simple kind of application, you may have like a a prefab wall or a a large wall panel, you know, elements that are built off-site, brought, and then they're tilted into place taken at its most extreme and comprehensive approach, the work that we're doing, uh, where you will manufacture the entire, in this case, a hotel, the entire hotel room is built in a steel cage, a full volumetric steel superstructure, has its facade on, it's a six-sided weatherproofed box, and it has all of the plumbing, all of the furniture, Uh, everything literally the tv the bed the nightstand the bathroom everything except for maybe like the soap and the soap dish is inside of this module it is then shipped to site lifted and plopped into place since all the infrastructure the mechanical infrastructure the hvac is already in there all you're doing is connecting basically plug and play at the corridor into the main building infrastructure and away you go and uh, that's what we're working on now we're designing a project uh, in manhattan in the, in the nomad area, it's going to be an AC by Marriott hotel. And in this case we're manufacturing all 168 guest rooms as individual modules in a factory in Krakow, Poland, sailing them from the port of Gdansk to the port of Red Hook in Brooklyn, and then driving them over the Manhattan bridge and then stacking them up one floor uh, per day on sixth Avenue and 29th street.
0: One floor per day. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> now, and this bit, is... I should say that's minorly misleading. It's one floor per day. You can stack all uh, eight apart, all eight hotel rooms in one day and then the, then the following day you bolt them together and do your welding work and then the day thereafter you can go back to work. So it's actually call it two days per floor. but yeah, you can stack an entire floor in a day.
0: That's amazing. So what would the, what would the traditional timeline have been?
1: I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm remiss to sort of like throw out numbers because, yeah. A, we're not done, so it hasn't been completed mm-hmm. yet. But, you know, in general, it, it, the, the, real, the real kind of blessing of something like this is not just that it's faster, which it is, but it's that you have concurrent timelines. In yeah. other words, while you're building the foundation, while you're building the podium, you are simultaneously manufacturing the rooms. So rather than thinking about the building sequentially, in other words, building as you go up, you have two simultaneous construction sites happening such that you're capturing all of that time. And then, of course, you're picking up the time just when you are stacking them as opposed to building them.
0: Right, right. And I, I mean, construction delays are probably almost a thing of the past with this, right? I
1: mean, well, it is, it is very important that you, you essentially uh, free yourself up from that sequential line yeah. whereby you can't do X until Y arrives and you right. can't till Y until Z arrives. So there's never a situation where you're saying, well, we can't do the sheetrock because we didn't finish the ducks. Yep. We can't do the ducks. So that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and, and that disintermediation is a very significant value added to the process. You're also building some pretty fine, detailed things and not doing them, say, 350 feet in the air yeah. uh, with open wind and snow. Right. 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 It's just a controlled environment.
0: Right. Right. And the, this is chronicled on your website, which um, quickly for those, um, Danny Forrester, D A N N Y F O R S T E R.com. Um, you can look at all those projects on the homepage, and this is the Modular AC Hotel Nomad. Um, if you're scrolling down there, a bunch of really great photos, renders, um, and explainers. Uh, I believe there's also some video link, I think. But um, yeah. really, really fascinating project. Now, this broke ground in 2018, January 2018, I believe. Is it, it's not yet yet done but close or no it's
1: not yeah uh, so yeah we're, we're building the foundations right now in manhattan and we have uh 150 of the 168 modules under in construction right now in poland so they're in various stages of undress it's just kind of like it's a bit like the henry ford assembly line except <laughs> instead of the car moving the people move yeah. so we've got all these rooms lined up at a 3,000 foot long factory it's really quite a sight to see and um yeah, it's a whole. It's a whole kind of vertically integrated system. You get the, the steel gets manufactured in Poland, arrives in the in the plant. The facade gets manufactured there. It all sort of all the stuff arrives in the in the in the assembly line, and and then you you go from there. Yeah. I would say just one other one other kind of point that I, I I like to reinforce because you know everyone is talking about this as the as the holy grail and it's the future of architecture and I think it does have an amazing future. I think it's really important that we. As a profession demonstrate that we can do this on time and on budget and so we're still i think trying to crawl before we before we walk or run Uh, but i will say one of the kind of critical pieces in any project this goes to an av integration or a very tall tower it's uh, cost certainty and at what Mm -hmm. point in the timeline of the project do you have that level of cost certainty well one of the things that modular requires because it's a factory right like if you buy a car at no point can you run on the assembly line and then ask them to change the steering wheel, <laughs> right? You can't like interrupt a, a Porsche being made and be like, you know what, I changed my um, mind. I actually want to go with a hard top. So you have to make a decision very early in the process. In this case, in a hotel or an apartment building, you've got to commit to the design and commit to all the stuff in the hotel room very, very early in the process yeah. in order to trigger the manufacturing. So what does that mean? It means you're basically taking, say, 80% of the square footage of the building And you are locking that price in and you can't make changes. Yeah. So that level of kind of, you know, basically a self-imposed constraint also brings a lot of cost certainty. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the biggest challenges. So really,
0: I mean, it, what it sounds like you're 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 hitting on is just the fact that this is a, a very repeatable um, a repeatable process in a way of of uh, increasing the time to completion on the projects, but also that um, the you kept repeating the the cost um, cost certainty. Was that the term that you used?
1: Yeah, and I say that more to to emphasize that you can, have cost certainty on major portions of the building, not necessarily that this is like so much cheaper, because I think you hear like, oh, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's better. And and you know I think over time, when we start to do more and more of these, the costs will come down and, and will come down quite substantially. For the time being, what I like to focus on is to say that take say 80% of your building, right? Take an apartment building, right? Minus the lobby in the back of the house. It's the majority of it is just the units. So same in a hotel. So what's cool about this process is that Because you have to lock in these decisions so early in order to trigger the manufacturing, that means that you have damn near cost certainty on like 80, maybe 85% of the square footage of a building. The price is locked and you really can't change anything because it's kind of like once you bought a car, you can't go to the assembly line and pick a new color. It is what it is. So because of that kind of self-imposed constraint, you can really have Very, very realistic cost certainty over a very large portion of the building, which in some cases could impact the contingency someone carries on a project, which can amount to real savings.
0: Right, right. And this isn't just a commercial thing either. I mean, we're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of this um, modular building um, and at a premium level now um, gaining more and more traction on the residential side. Um, One of the companies that I work with is talking with one of the manufacturers of these modular um, residential. Um, the homes. Um, and and it's fascinating. And I hadn't really realized that, that we had progressed into that. Um, you know, I was familiar with sort of the, uh, what are those, the structured insulated panels and, you know, with Sips. components of, yeah, SIPs, right? And so we have components coming in as modular elements but not the entire structure with all of the uh, the goods and technologies included inside and i'm wondering sort of how how well known is this do you think at this point is is are we kind of scratching the surface as far as consumer awareness of this or um or do you think that that we've we're kind of hitting the ground running already
1: well, for one, it's funny. It's not necessarily even a new technology. I mean, we have, If you think about how a cruise ship is built, people yeah, have been true. putting in prefabricated steel objects with all of the mechanical stuff, all the beds and all the furniture into very large steel cruise ships for you know, 80, 100 years. Yeah. Um, we're just now applying it, I think, at a different scale. Yeah. I think one of the major drivers in change here are optics. I think people's perception, especially in America, because modular in America has really been born out of the wood-framed mobile home industry. We right. think of double wides, we think of trailer yeah. homes, and they have a certain stigma attached to them. So the, the majority of the manufacturing of housing that we've had in America has that as an origin. Europe, it's a different story. I think now we're seeing a bit of a convergence where volumetric steel, high-rise, urban modular projects are happening. They're not happening everywhere they're happening you know we've got a few in new york uh we've got some out west happening it's happening in philly you know it's happening in major cities and we have three projects we're working on we've got about seven on the drawing board right now um it is uh happening it is happening right now i mean the capital markets are responding you know banks lend on these projects and that means they're real at least in the eyes of the finance community so i think we are hitting a point of inflection right now but i think as a result of that it's really critical that projects like the one that we're working on and many others are done. I think it's really critical for the project that we're working on and many others that we get it right. You know, right. it'd be great to do a grand slam. We're trying to hit doubles. Right. We're trying to validate a process and a technology at this point, not yeah. necessarily, you know, win the race.
0: Yeah. So if you were talking to, um, a, I, su- I suspect that the answer is probably going to be um, the same for both. But um, if you were talking to a, to a consumer, um, somebody uh, looking at this as a potential option or a way to go, you know, they've got the property, um, they've got an idea of, of ultimately the the house that they want to live in and what that structure might look like and what the experience might be. But um, if they were coming to you, what, uh, how would that conversation go? What would, what would some of the sort of the cautions be um, or sort of considerations that you might offer to them as, as you know, takeaways before the, a decision is made?
1: You know, I think the decision to go modular or not, I think like a lot of different technologies, it, it's not really about the technology. Frankly, you know, when our building is done, this, this tall building I'm describing to you in, yeah. in Manhattan, you shouldn't know how we built it. It mm-hmm. shouldn't look like stacked boxes. It shouldn't feel like it was built modularly. It should just feel like a great piece of architecture, right? I think the same goes for if you're doing uh, a wood frame modular home. The decision to go modular is less about what kind of home do you want? Because the reality is modular can basically do just about everything a regular stick-built construction project can do. It's a question of are there certain efficiencies that we can leverage? Is the site particularly tricky in terms of access to labor? Um, Are there certain structural things you want to do that might be easier? Easier are there certain repeatable elements that might be cheaper to do in a factory? So it's more about, does this make sense?
0: Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Is there an opportunity as opposed to I'm super into modular, let's do modular. Cause I think that's, that's the same sort of mentality of someone's like, I really, really want this one technology, even if it doesn't necessarily fit their needs. Right. So it's more about the logic behind it than the advent of it itself.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, I'm I'm assuming that a lot has changed or maybe the better term is evolved um since you were um going through college um and I'm curious so now since you got your masters um at Harvard if I if I if I recall that being correct how how has sort of technology and the convergence of design and technology how has that changed evolved in in that time span
1: well you know I think it's funny, when I started graduate school, I was the first class at Harvard that were not required to draw. Really? Uh, they, they used to ban the computer to, you know, before yeah. a certain point. And I was the first class of architects who basically could have been complete, uh, digi- completely digitally educated, wow. never actually learned how to draw by hand. Truth be told, I'm sort of one of those, those people because when I got to graduate school, I didn't have a big background in architecture. A lot of my uh, compatriots did. And I was seeing people just like making amazing models and doing great drawings and just like, and you know, like freaking out, like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't don't have these skills. And the only way that I could keep up both with my classmates, also with my own brain, because I had a lot of ideas, but I couldn't get them out with my like useless hand and my inability to draw. So the computer for me wasn't necessarily like a great technology, but it was the most expeditious way to get my ideas out. And so I didn't lean towards technology because it was cool. I leaned towards it because I had to, because I had to accelerate, and it was the fastest way for me to keep up. I think architecture, since I got out of graduate school, it's just been the same every day. There's more to it. Uh, Obviously, I think the big, uh, the big kind of seismic shift for us uh, has been BIM, uh, Building Information Modeling, and Revit. Just the basic idea that we we simply do not have a three D digital model as separate from are 2D orthographic construction drawings. Those things are, for, for the audience who's not familiar, we have one, they are, they've are they been merged, right? So we have a single digital model of the building and that digital model exports the drawings. So if I move a wall, the wall changes in the drawings. They're all integrated, they're all connected, it's all dynamic, uh, it's all parametric. That's, that. to me, it's funny. It's not like it's like such a game changer so much as like it just makes logical sense. It just is exactly what, a 3D spatial industry that has to create 2D instructions for a builder, if that's how we have to play, well then perfect, and this is the perfect technology to support our vision and their methods of execution.
0: Right, right. So that's a that's interesting with um with the the progression from um from drawing to digital. And I think in in our world and in A V as well and that that definitely has been our evolution and, and a big part of the the Effective evolution and the growth of, of the industry, and I think overall the offering that, that we have um, to the consumers is a, so much design work was done in Excel um, or in Visio even, and with no connectivity to other systems and subsystems, um, inventory, purchasing, um, you know, it's a, it, so we had a complete disconnect between design and cost, um, and there was every every one of those connecting points had to be done manually, and so a lot of uh, a lot of room for error, um, a lot of opportunity for lost margins and revenues um, through mistakes or misquoting the wrong price for the right product, those sorts of things, um, and thankfully, um, especially over you know like the last. Ten years, five years, especially where we've got we've seen a lot more refinement. Where um, the audiovisual industry is really becoming much more digitally dependent, and the system design um, and estimating proposals are all being done um, in in platforms online, in in a much more professional presentation. And I'm, I, it, I believe that that's helping the audio visual integrator also become a more trusted partner to the other trades. I'm curious if you've sort of seen a similar um, experience from your side. Have you, have you sort of seen more of a a professional presentation and more detailed um, diagramming and specifications coming or, um, or not so much? Oh yeah.
1: I mean, we have, we have integrator partners who bring renderings. Yeah. I mean, we can give them the Revit model. They can open the Revit model. They can, they can drop in their technology. Um, you know, there's there's already many, many pre-made Revit families for lots of different keypads and lots of the different tech. Um, and you can have low voltage drawings built into the model as well. So for sure. Yeah. And it just makes it, uh, look, I'm, this is, I'm saying it's getting the obvious here, but it's better for everybody. Better yep. for them, better for us, better for the client, better for the industry. So, you know, yeah, everyone should sure. do it. We all look like badasses. Let's
0: yep. all keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, clarity, transparency and professionalism it's 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 a, it's a beautiful combination, right? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah.
1: No, it's great. Yeah. Totally
0: great. Yeah. Well, you mentioned BIM and um and I'm, I'm for the for the audience that we serve which um is a mixture of integration professionals, consumers, manufacturers, um associations and sort of everybody that caters or services that. Um I'm curious what how uh, when we're talking about BIM, do you do you recommend that manufacturers of products um, make the make their BIM files available? And does RCAT play into that? Is that something that that is important to you personally or to your profession? I assume that it is, considering it's for architects, but. Um, and I guess maybe more of kind of the the overarching question is, um, what would you recommend to manufacturers to make sure that their products and the specifications are as easily accessible to you and you know and your peers, um, so that what you're doing is is as uh, easy or effective to do efficiently.
1: You know, I don't want to say that if I'm deciding between two specs and one has a perfectly built Revit family and one doesn't. <laughs> that the one, the one with the Revit family gets into the project. But that might happen sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, I, I guess what I'm saying, I'm being a little facetious here, but <laughs> clearly if you can, you know, back in the day they'd come to our office and they'd leave these binders and they'd push all, the, this, all their physical crap into our office and we'd look at it and learn about it and so forth. And, and they got great websites and, and now we're moving into into you know, had CAD blocks and now we've got uh, Revit families, right? To to not do it is to shoot yourself in the foot. Yep. And so every time a manufacturer has a really user friendly website with a killer set of pre built families, they become our friends. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. uh, it just just do it. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just like you know it's like it's like me as the crotchety old guy being like I don't get social media. It's like okay, well, <laughs> for a while that was okay, but now I'm an idiot. <laughs> so now I have to get it. Yeah. And I can be like, oh, those kids on the Snapchat. Okay, fine. Maybe it's Snapchat I'm not gonna get involved in, but I'm gonna have to deal with Instagram. Right,
0: right. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Good choice there. Good choice. Good choice.
1: I'm just gonna have to. <laughs> it's just gonna happen. <laughs> I cannot and the phone will ring less. Yeah. But yeah. You just gotta deal with it. And I think yeah. the same goes with manufacturers getting their getting their, their stuff digitized in a smart way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so RCAD is the one that comes up most frequently in, in, in conversations, at least that I have with with uh, uh, those that, that have any participation or knowledge of of the space at all. Is that um is is, is that kind of the
1: We're a Revit office through and through. Through and so through it just, okay. It just depends. That's just that's yeah. where we landed and that's that's just okay. where we're, so it's we're kind most of more... comfortable.
0: Okay. And RCAD is it's different than that. Is that what you're saying?
1: I don't know the difference. I believe that. so. I yeah. don't I don't use
0: that. Yeah, you're like I still don't use it, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Well, that 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 was really good information, and I, you know, it's um kind of jumped around on you a little bit there, but you know, I know uh, from from where the integration community sits, um, and uh, manufacturers and associations, you know, really trying to wrap our arms around, um, you know, really the you know we we've and i'll say unfortunately you can you can clarify for me but um you know the architect and design community has become the holy grail for us on on av and in tech um and 2019 is a year that we all collectively really want to make a deeper connection and without that sounding cheesy you know really make make a meaningful connection that helps us all do better work and produce a better experience for our for our collective clients on the other side. Um, and it really, to me, feels like 2019 is is going to be the year where it's going to start to take root. I'm sure it's going to take some time, and I know we'll stumble. But, you know, do you have any kind of, I guess, as, as parting thoughts, you know, any kind of closing comments to, um, you know, first to integrators and then, I guess, to your peers of, you know, sort of, here we are now, um, how, can we, how can we continue this cohesion and, um, and maybe even expedite it or, you know, kind of any sort of closing thoughts just sort of on that?
1: Sure. You know, I spoke at the, uh, at the Crestron Residential Summit recently and I, and I asked the audience, all integrators, and I said, how many of you in the audience have done a lunch and learn at an architect's <laughs> office? And I think about like two to 3% of the audience rose their hand. That's it. And I'm going to, I'm going to say that basically yeah. uh, a lunch and learn is a pretty simple thing, right? You cold call an architect, you come in and in exchange for a few sandwiches, you get their ear for an hour and you teach them stuff yeah. and uh, you are teaching them two things. Number one, you're teaching them who you are, which is mission critical for your business development. But more importantly, you are educating us who really are the gateways to the clients, about how to talk about and even know what's out there. And I am so happy to appear smarter than I actually am. It's, it's actually like the best thing in my life, right? Pretending to be smart. The best way that I can pretend to be smart is that people like wonderful AV integrators onboard me with information. Yeah, uh, I'm being sarcastic here, but you know what I mean? It's yeah. really, really important uh, that AV integrators acknowledge that architects and interior designers will be the conduit. But rather than coming in and demonstrating how much they know versus what we know, educate us with the baseline so we can get the conversation started and you guys come in at the closer and knock it out of the park. But that only happens if you teach us. Yep. Yeah. And we're
0: very teachable. (laughs) <laughs> we're very receptive. You know, and I think that's just my personal take from it is that, I, and I kind of alluded, well, I said it directly earlier, but you know, I think that the, the challenge has been, it's just, it's, it's kind of comes back to that old, it's not what you do, it's how you do. Um, and I, I just feel as though we probably have just come in a little bit too aggressive, a little too bullish and, I, and I assume, though, I I know in some cases this actually has happened, where it is all about, we're so much smarter, if you're not using our technology, you're doing it wrong, and, and almost even talking down to the very audience that they're trying to embrace and engage with, um, and not really understanding that that's what was going on. It wasn't intentional. It was just sort of how how the approach was um and i think you know the lunch and learn is definitely um something that i i'm hearing more and more integrators are doing and i think you know it's the cool thing on the ab side is and and perhaps it's true on on in your world too but we're we actually are a very tight-knit community and you know it's sort of uh, as as long as you continue to play in your own sandbox and and you know don't try to infiltrate somebody else's marketplace um, there really is a very open environment here and the lunch and learn topic has been one that has been very broadly discussed and as right now it's kind of like the the thing that integrators are finding success with but only those who are approaching it with the right sentiment and you know to your point of don't don't come in and and, come in and educate us um and share with us what's new and changing and i and so i think you know for the integrators that are listening to this show and 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 to your peers that's that's the big aha and the big takeaway for 2019 is you know restructure your approach to be more effective and and effective in the receipt by the audience that you're speaking to and Danny just provided a bunch of really good insight here um, rewind listen rewind listen um, and try it out try it out um, you know I, I bet you that you'll you'll see see success those integrators that I work with or that I've spoken with who are doing lunch and learns are seeing great success um there are several that i know too that are taking that to a whole nother level and are turning um the lunch and learn concept into an immersive education day um and you know taking a facility. At, um, You may know the Savant Experience Center, for instance, there in Soho. Um, You know, the integrators will take over that space and bring architects in and do a full day of education on different um, smart home or connected home technologies, not just what Savant offers, but lighting, shading, um, uh, high-definition television, home theater, acoustics, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, I think that for those that are embracing the concept of educating to inspire and align. Um, and I think we're, we're seeing some success. And um, so I'm really glad to hear you talk as, as well about, about that. I mean, it just continues to cement the notion that this, you know, we're at, we're at that intersection and, and it's, we're, we're on the right path. So.
1: yeah, I mean, we yeah. don't get out much, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we... <laughs> well, you and, do. Uh, <laughs> I get out that, but my, but my team may not, right? right. So, so like, if my staff is out looking at technology, they're probably not working on, on architecture, right? So, we need you guys to come and, and onboard us. We yeah. need it. And the truth is when those experiences transpire and they are pedagogical and not sales-based, yeah. it just becomes a simple thing that down the road when I have a question or a client or something, I call these A-B integrators not as a would-be vendor, but as a partner to help. And once that relationship is transitioned from vendor to partner, then that's it. You're in, it's over. You're know, yeah. over, you won. Yeah, and uh, you, win. you win. You win everything. What do you get? You get all of the stuff. You yeah, get yeah. all of the stuff. Yeah, that's for you out there. You get all of it. But so yeah, I do think it's. I do think it's great, and we we are thrilled about it because, say, unlike someone coming in and saying, "Here, look at these fancy fabrics," or "Look at this cool sealant that we are now offering." The AV integration world is really saying it's so diverse in the things that we're learning about. As you say, from acoustics to lighting, to video, to audio, to shades, to, to yeah, HVAC, there's so much for us to learn that uh, it's never about, do we like this fabric or do we like this color?
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, this was a quick sidebar question that's totally related to this, though. It, do you, um, Is it important that there's CEU connected to that lunch and learn conversation, or is it is that a nice to have, not a need to have in order for the, the introduction of that as being an opportunity, being interesting and appealing to you? Or is, like I said, is that a nice to have or a need to have?
1: Sorry, is the what? I, I missed the C,
0: if, uh, if the integrator is able to provide CEU for any of the coursework that they're... Or oh, yeah. That they're no, sure. That,
1: that's great. Obviously, getting credit wonderful, and that helps. And it keeps, and it, sure, it's a, but it's not critical. I don't think it's, it's a requirement. Okay. Uh, there There is so much more that we need to learn, then there are credits for us to have to ingest, so I wouldn't see that as a prohibitive matter by any means.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay, all right, good to know, good to know. Well, Danny, thank you so, so much. As I said when we got into the conversation, I'm sure I could sit and talk to you here for two hours, and I, I get the sense that you'd graciously comply, but, um, I, but I don't want to do that to you today, um, but I really would if, if you're amenable to it. I'd love to, to do this on a somewhat of a recurring basis, you know, once or twice a year, and just you know, as as things progress and evolve, um, you know, sort of do a check back in. As you know, when we talked in January. Here's where things were, and um, you know, so we'll we'll cross that bridge as we get as we get to it. But uh, you know, what you do is amazing. Uh, your background is fascinating, and it's I just I just truly enjoyed the conversation today and getting to know you a little bit more. So thank you again for for taking the time and and sharing. Um, if you wouldn't mind uh, on the spot a little bit here, but um, if uh, let people know how they can find you and learn more about you, any social media presence where they might be able to follow you as well,
1: yeah, sure. Um, if you want to learn about the firm, you can just go to dannyforster.com. Uh, that's also at Danny Forster is my Instagram, and uh, Danny Forster and Architecture is the architecture firm. And I believe on Instagram, we are just Danny Forster Architecture. Okay. Uh, uh, that's yeah, I, I at Google just use the Google. Google. The Google. Use the you Google. You'll find them. You'll find yep. me on the Google. Yep. I'm there. And that's Forrester,
0: F O R S T R. if you're using yes,
1: the Goobs. Yes, F-O-R-S-T-E-R. It is neither a Subaru nor a beer. <laughs> so and if that is a perfect way to
0: close this out, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, once again, thank you so much for taking time. I appreciate it, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again, Danny. You got it. Thank you. All right. Yep, yep. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. So that's a wrap for today's show. But if you'd like to stay up to speed on future episodes, you can follow Connecting T&D on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to Connecting Tech and Design on Podbean or wherever else you consume your podcast content. As always, thanks for listening.